Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. I have to say the overall ambience here is, is much more of a day spa than an office. We're surrounded by plants <laughs> and you've got the kind of the whale sounds and the soft light trickling in. It, I mean, the original <laughs> intention was to create, if you think about working in the future, and there are a lot of, of um, issues about credibility and proof, and what we wanted to do was to create a building which felt as if you were in the past. Right. So we were trying to ground people. So some of the rooms were designed to be feel like the 80s. Uh, some of the rooms, if you go to the boardroom, for example, it feels as if you're in the 70s. And where are your dark satanic and mills? Are they in the basement the where basement, you put all the interns? The basement and in the, in the wine <laughs> cellar. So we even have a wine cellar, which we, again, <laughs> had this idea that if you're having conversations about the future, they have to be convivial because otherwise they become confrontational and they become slightly polemical, as you know, because a lot of people think, you know, the future is science fiction. Uh, questionable ethics, the whole issue of, of, of sciences and technologies that haven't been quite explored yet. So really what we're trying to do with the garden and with the, the infrastructure of the building and the soundtracks was to create a context in which it became easier and more relaxing to discuss sometimes quite problematic things about the future. This is, this is sort of the esoteric equivalent of painting walls pink to keep drunk Prisoners, prisoners <laughs> at, 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 at bay and, and to kind of tranquilize them. And in some ways, you, you're right, because if you think about it, you know, you're, if you're dealing with a company like, for example, say Spotify or Microsoft or, or um, Facebook, who are our clients, and, and you're discussing the future, they have a certain sense that the thing has a possibility to open up and that you run forward to embrace it. However, if you're dealing with brands like Marks & Spencer, for example, which are also a client, or somebody like you know, ASOS or New Look, you also have the question that they think about the now and not about the next, unless, of course, they think about the brand called Next. But generally, <laughs> you, you have this constant dilemma of how you ground people and I suppose the best way then to move forward with the conversation and also the language because again to use um, certain words that are acceptable to some brands like for example you know we, we coined a phrase um, leisure to describe business and leisure and for a lot of brands that's an easy leap but if you're dealing with a mid-range or down market hotel where they're still coming to terms with basic comforts they just think it's a spelling mistake yeah and, and not only that that you have a real I suppose, um, kind of problem arguing them into the space to understand that, you know, generationally and in fact in terms of how we, we, we you know, develop our corporate work structures, that people already think in these environments, work in them and potentially want to live in them or, and, and work there. And, and what you try to do is to remove the sting of the conversation so people are not distracted by the language. Right. They're looking at the context and looking at the opportunity. I'm uh, having a proper cup of English tea uh, with Martin Raymond. And a biscuit. And a biscuit, although the dog has been eyeing those. He has, uh, so you keep it away, he's been breathing on them. <laughs> <laughs> um, Martin Raymond, who is the uh, co-founder of the uh, Future Laboratory, uh, one of the oldest and most esteemed 
futures agencies in the world. And uh, we're sitting in their wonderful office in East London. Uh, it's good to finally meet you in person. And really good to meet you, because I've been following you for ages, not, not obviously with a, with physically a, stalking with a, you. With a long-range lens. Yeah, and, and I think it's interesting. <laughs> I was looking at your book recently to see, and my question actually to you is a lot of the things you touched on were what I call very now and contemporary thinking to what was happening in the future, what will happen in the future. And, and you know, again, I was kind of thinking, well, how did you know all of that? Well, I was trying to work with the publishing date of the book. Which, which book was it's this? One Futuretainment? No, it's on, on the dictionary oh, of the dictionary dangerous ideas. ideas. Yeah, because a lot of those ideas uh, are not just contemporary now, but are still coming into the firmament of yeah, debate and, and of argument. Yeah, I actually wrote four or five years yeah, ago. Yeah, you see. So there's proof that you actually can find people who can not just predict and anticipate the future, but get it right. Well, we, we were talking about this and it's, it's almost, uh, I think sometimes people assume that the future is about technology, but actually it's about philosophy. Yeah, and, and And you can easily take technology on a few extra points of things being faster or smaller or cheaper. And then actually the philosophy has been around for thousands of years. And also, I think the the you know if you think about the you know the current movement for you know collaboration, co-sharing, the notion of of you know co-creating, again they were ideas I point out to people were like five thousand years old. Originally, yeah. that's how we would have negotiated the production of something. You know, even in the nineteenth yeah. century, bartering, yeah, right? bartering, yeah. yeah. The nineteenth century cooperative systems. You know, the the the, the kind of return to this notion of of, of um, pre-Raphaelite brotherhood, yeah. living together in these communes and sharing and swapping, you know, skills and talents in exchange for other skills and talents and activities. So that, that yeah, you're right, and you could you could you could have imagined Karl Marx coming out with the Universal Basic Income Manifesto. <laughs> the thing is, we realise history has produced all of these things, but because the time is not opportune, yeah. or the people are not ready to debate it, or you know, if you think about what's happening, you know, in in America, you think about millennials are producing what is essentially a great socialist manifesto. You know, car sharing, the notion that that we will reduce our carbon footprint in cities, that we will be more cooperative, that we produce things organically. You know, that we have a more a kind of a bigger social conscience. If you said that to somebody in America 20 years ago, you'd either be regarded as a communist or imprisoned as an anarchist. Yes. And now it's part of the, you know, the, what I call the San Francisco social discourse. Yeah, but then again, we had those debates. I mean, it, but it used to be we need to get all the horses off the street and replace them with more environmental motor cars yeah, yeah. because of all the manure. <laughs> yes, well, and, and, and uh, you know, I discovered, as, as you will know this, in, in 1905 in America, there was as many electric cars as there were cars driven by the, the internal combustion engine. And it yeah. became a matter of logistics, of getting the electricity to the fastest number of stations. And they realized it was easier to pump oil than it was to generate electricity. So by, by kind of a sheer fluke in history, we've ended up taking one wrong, well, not one wrong turn, but a, a different turn. a little bit of political maneuvering. And political maneuvering, yes. Uh, on a similar vein, I was always amazed that wireless power had, had, has been around for 100 yeah, years. Yeah. But uh, JP Morgan, who was one of the original backers of Tesla's plan to do wireless power, had a huge stake in copper mines. Yeah, so they're really and, and when they were going to build the national grid, he stood to make a fortune out of copper. Yeah, but it's, 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 I think what is interesting is a lot of the ideas we look at now, uh, you can find um, you know, parallel examples in history. Yeah. And I always say to people, look, look, let's look at what happened previously 
and is there a way to use that to work out what could happen next? But is this to suggest to be a good futurist you actually need to be a better historian? I think you need to have some sense of history. Or a sense of context. Yeah, a sense of context. And I think in this case, uh, you're, you're trying to reassure and to ground people in the right way to say, so look, this has happened before. Here was one of the, the outcomes. Imagine if we reran the scenario with the following things in place. Because, you know, history uh, can teach us certain things, but it can also remind us that we can make mistakes. And in itself, it's not a good rule of thumb no. to move forward. But it's one of the things I would always work with a client on. I said, let's look for the examples in the past. Where did it go right? What went wrong? And now look at what could happen in the future. You've seen a few cycles in the futures industry uh, in the way that we've packaged the future and we consume it uh, and how that's changed. W w where do you think we're at now? Because it, it, it almost feels like now there's an uh, you know, infinite amount of information about stuff that's happening. You, you can't really arbitrage the markets by just showing what's happening in Japan because you, know, you can find that out in real time. I think the, the, there, okay, there are a number of changes. If I look at you know, um, forecasting in the 50s, as an example, look, looking to history again, was driven quite a lot by strategies which came out of military right, planning. Right, this, this was the Navy. So it's kind of Navy, but you know, the Rand Corporation, right. um, you know, thinking about... Decision analysis. Decision analysis, but also then using that as predictive decision analysis. So let's work forward from what we know now. In, in the 60s and 70s, it went down an ecological route. So people were looking at the notion of, you know, small is beautiful, uh, a new world order based on a, a kind of more sensible agrarian principles. Right. Parallel to that, you had this whole push towards out, moving out from the planet. So out there, science, technology, innovation to lift us off the planet. Right. Then in the 80s, forecasting became very much about expansion on the planet. Was so, this sort of the whole third wave? And yeah, and, and, and also, you know, because then it was getting to, into, you know, the connected world, the digital world, the, the, you know, the information age. So what we were, we were then mistakenly doing is assuming that knowledge equipped us with a better sense of managing and forecasting and finding opportunity in the future. Right. And, and you realise that that was simply the zeitgeist of the time. So now the zeitgeist are about you know, algorithms and it's about robotics and deep learning and everybody is now telling me that, well, you know, do you need forecasters if you have you know, a, a, a such available data, that great lake of data? And I kind of go, data in itself isn't a solution. Data can become not just part of the problem, but it can distract you from looking at the solution. So we've almost come full circle in that if you have, it's like the uh, mechanical Turk. You yes. Know, if, if they yeah. see the if they see the robot futurist, which is the black box, yeah, and, they assume and, that's and there's a human being who's like speaking out of it. They don't care as long as it looks like an algorithm is coming. Yeah, and up I think it's, it's I think it's it's you know the moment it's a combination of both because I think what you have <laughs> is a lot of data, you have a lot of of um, accrued insights, and uh, you know a machine's ability isn't so far advanced that it can take those things, make fairly what I think it's still our intuitive guesses about opportunity and possibility, and then push that forward. What it's very good at doing is spotting, well, the, the, you know, the data signs are showing us that this thing suggests that if 3% of the people like this and the data has gone up to 5% and 10%, that this will mean by you know, X date, more people will be buying into that idea. And as we know, historically, that hasn't always been the case. No. I, I there's a degree to which you can see that these new machine learning systems are really going to change tactical and operational decision making. 
yes. uh, where, where, yeah. where the dynamics of a system are kind of known and can be modelled. But to what degree do you think that leaders should be consuming the future or thinking about the future uh, and at what time scale? Like, like what, what should be the, the thought process? So the, the, the consuming the future, okay, I always think you, you have to take a, um, I suppose, a kind of a, a letterbox look at the future because people tend to look at it within their sector or their industry and maybe they look at you know the, 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 the adjacent one too but generally we tend not to take a bird's eye view and I think that's the sign of good leadership. And we're also generally reasoning from analogy. Yes. Like we, we go you know company X has done this maybe our future is to do the same. To do the same thing. So, so, so in some ways I think uh, first of all it's a matter of training how you train people to look at the future. And I think we don't train people to analyze the future in the way we train them to analyze figures, for example, or you know, f financial forecasts. So what I think is, is, is important is that leaders, and I think you know, events like Davos are slightly pushing people towards an understanding that sometimes a long view is required and big ideas thinking should be embraced and the moonshot, you know, the moonshot opportunity that, that Google talks about. So by introducing that into the language and the notation of leadership, you're introducing imagination into the process of leadership. And right. part of looking at the future requires you to have quite a brilliant and broad and fairly, um, not just intuitive, but quite a good incisive sense of how to imagine. And again, these are skills that we leave in the arts and the culture, and you know, and part of what would have been the, the, the well, natural maybe, sciences. Maybe science too. I science, I agree. And, and, and because you know, it's also that first principles. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, you're told something's impossible, but you're able to reason, you know, from the ground up that actually there's a smarter way of doing. And it. And then you, you know, we we have started, and the, the thing I, I like about future forecasting and future gazing and all of those areas like strategic forecasting, whatever you want to call it, is that it has finally admitted that there is an issue about intuition, which is a requirement of, and now that we have, if you look at you know, the work that has been done on, on strategic intuition, how you measure intuition, what does intuition mean? We now accept that it can be part of the, the um, formula for forecasting the future. I think this, the, the other bit that, that we sort of pushed back on was, was the ability to believe the impossible. Because as yeah. you know, you know, if you think about uh, you know, hotels, they never believed that something like Airbnb would ever have any impact on the business. If you're a car manufacturer, you would absolutely dismiss the idea that you could have car sharing because it was so fundamentally against your business model and anti you know, the American way, that notion of sharing. You know, where, where leaders are really being led now is, is not just trying to predict what will happen in their industry, but some of the bigger philosophical questions and and this is an area where I was really interested because you guys have just come out with a report on on 21st century ethical issues essentially yes well, we, we we were aware that as you have debates about for example driverless cars or you think about artificial intelligence or robotics they're always had on fairly commercial levels you know what are the consequences of having you know, AI, if you are, are, are forced to make people redundant, et cetera, et cetera. And I think people always follow the utilitarian route in terms of these debates. And we were saying, well, look, what about more fundamental questions about, given that we have the Me Too campaign, given that we've had a reboot of feminism, given that the whole debate about equality has become a hugely important issue to discuss publicly and privately, why 
have we created the Alexas and series with very traditional subservient female voices. Like I Dream of Genie. Like basically. I Dream of Genie. So we've, we've <laughs> kind of sort of admitted that there is an issue between you know, gender parity, and yet here we are yet again replicating in the virtual realm the same prejudices and misunderstandings that we find in the, in, you know, the real and the public. Yeah. So we said, well, actually, these are the things we should be talking about. So a robot, when we say that robots you know, are sentient or will be sentient beings, how does, does that affect their equality? Well, Google deliberately, I think, chose not to give their uh, assistant a name for this reason. Yeah. But, uh, you know, still, it's interesting if you ask people, when you say, you know, um, your artificial assistants, automatically people default to a gender. They will say she. Yeah. But there's n there is no, nothing that says that there should be he or no. she. Well, at, least, at least the Japanese are honest enough. When they created one, they created a holographic girlfriend yes. in like a skimpy outfit. And it is exactly, so <laughs> there is no doubt as to what the intention <laughs> is. It's like a sex doll or, or yeah. you know, like your, your kind of home Barbie or whatever. And I understand that because that sits within the realms of the tropes that are developed. However, I'm trying to look at the bigger scale. When for, it's for, invisible, for, it's much more dangerous. Yeah, and for the, for the CEO to think, why have I created this, this system that behaves in this manner? And for, for example, would you want your child speaking to another human being in the way that your child now speaks to Alexa or Siri? Yeah, I was, I was really interested the, at the last Google um, developer conference. They've They've changed the algorithm slightly, so if you use please and thank you, it'll respond to you in a more positive way, which seems to be a, a direct it's, reference to parents. Yes, it's, 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 again, it's a development, but also there is also the issue about how uh, you can't get Alexa to say certain swear words, no. or there's a pushback when you try to, for example, if you're typing in something on, on search, and you use a particular phrase or a term that might be regarded as, as, as kind of offensive by some people, it will try to change the spelling or it will ask you it's something else. It's got West Coast morality baked right. into and, it. Right, and, and <laughs> these are the things that I think increasingly, so driverless cars, you know, another little example, the, the, the big pushback has been that, you know, a lot of laws require us to keep the person behind the wheel, to have their hands close to the wheel. And what you realize is that, in fact, most all of the accidents, even with, driverless cars have been called by human error. And what we're, we're refusing to accept is that this new group of entities or beings that we potentially are creating will require different moralities, right. different interventions, different conversations, but we're not equipping ourselves to do that. We, we don't even want to have the conversation about statistically acceptable death rates. Yeah, which, yeah. Uh, which actually is something that can be programmed in. And, and if you think about it, you know, if, if there are 42,000 people killed in, you know, on the roads in the US because of human error, it would be absolutely possible, if not a, a legislative requirement, to program the, the AIs and the driverless cars to reduce that death rate by a third. Imagine we do that. But to do that, you'd have to then keep people's hands off the wheels and stop them interfering with a bloody robot when he or she goes out. See, I'm using even gender pronouns for yeah. the robot. But, but So what we really want to do with, the, with I suppose, the, the debate and, and, in fact, the series that we're running over the year is to encourage people to start seeing these things as important into the daily, you know, the daily running of a business. But secondly, to realize that if we make the inputs now, we will be able to alter the potential outcomes because the future isn't a written book. I, I definitely a, it's agree a, it's with you. One. I think in, in the 21st century, the most important debate to have about the future is not really just trends or who's doing what, but, but really trying to get deep into the 
philosophical levers around to do it, yeah. because they drive outcomes and choices, especially yeah. in an algorithmic age. What I find challenging though is where it's not just a case of uncovering the hidden politics of algorithms, but when you have a choice between two different moral compasses. Yes. So, yeah. like, I mean, let's let's talk about Cambridge Analytica and Facebook because there's one way of looking at that and say, well, uh, it was a moving feast on on the kinds of user policies that they had, and they learned there is and changed them over times. So they arguably were within the bounds of regulation. Yeah. yeah. So, so what, what, what should be the moral compass here? Like, well, how I, do you know when you've done something wrong? Okay, so I think, first of all, I was surprised that people were surprised that Facebook, either you know, tacitly or explicitly, were with um, Cambridge Analytica doing something that people were horrified about. I said, well, first of all, what did you think they were doing? You've given over all of this private data yeah. as you saw it, and, and you were allowing them to make choices about your books, choices about what you liked, and, and the it's news not just feeds you read. They've been doing this with brands yeah. for every, the last 10 every, years. Yeah. So, so it was a real, I suppose, an eye opener for me to realize that I suppose working in the area of, of, of kind of you know, futures and looking at, at, at strategic forecasting, that you realize we tend to live slightly ahead of how ordinary people are seeing what to you or I will be fairly acceptable practices. The issue then is once you know that's the practice, you then look at how you frame the rules around it. Right. So I assume that these rules have been framed. You realize, of course, most people had no idea or seemed to believe they had no idea that this is what was happening. Surprise, so, surprise, they didn't read yeah, the user agreement. Exactly. <laughs> and the, the, you know, the great thing is, I think, now that we know it, it's not going to stop this happening because that's the inevitability of how uh, an algorithm works. The lawyers are just have got um, more explicit consent now consent. to what they were doing before. But also, we now <laughs> need to look at it. How can we make this work positively? So think about medical data. So if we were applying the same processes and systems to medical data, there's a great potential and opportunity to find cures that have been slipping through systems because nobody is, is doing comparative matching or comparative analysis. Uh, nobody is looking at death rates of people from cancer or obesity and looking for the patterns that sit within it. So what we should be saying is, where is this acceptable? How can we use it more effectively? And why not? If I sign off consent, for example, to have my, my vital organs used after my death, why should I fear signing off my data while I'm living if that data can be used more beneficially to well, help the, the, and, the and, and manage is, other systems I mean, and the, other people? But the problem is, is that if you have as you're already seeing in the US, the kind of the vertical integration of insurance companies and, yeah. and providers, that same data mate, will probably be used to prevent you from ever getting insurance it, if it, you've got some sort of hereditary It condition. could prevent, it could work both ways. You see, I, I think this is where the debate's required because if, for example, I am you know, on an income where I really have to think about saving money and therefore my insurance um, premium they, they have all of my medical data, but they've also got my, my travel data. And they realize that you know I, I, I drive to work when in fact I should be walking to work. So therefore, there's a way to reduce my premium by me signing a note of acceptance that I will walk to work every day and just you know become fitter, reduce my cholesterol levels, and potentially improve my health. So to me, it's, it's kind of a nudging me towards a pathway where I'm not sure if that's intrusive. It might be annoying, but that's like your mum or your dad or your best mate telling you, look, 
if you don't do this now, you're going to suffer later. So I'm in favour. I can see you're a data of, optimist. Yeah, I'm <laughs> in favour of, of data nudging that will just give people a bit more warning. I was thinking about this. Look, you know, I went to my, my doctor recently and he was saying there is a simple solution. He said if we put all of our medical records up onto a protected database so that you can look into any aspect of your medical history, but if over time, a, a, an algorithm is allowed to alert you to the fact that your lifestyle practices are becoming increasingly worrying and that you need to do the following to, to kind of help you out. He said, would you object to that? I was thinking, well, actually, I wouldn't. So no. I, I, I do think we have to be realistic. But you know what? I, I can see both the potential benefits and pitfalls yeah, agreed. of yeah. all of this. And I think it's very difficult to have spot regulation because it's a moving yes, target. Yes, agreed. Right? You must so, so, so my question is, for a company to have this much data around you, which is going to happen at some point, what would you feel comfortable as being the guiding ethical principle that governs this? I mean, we laugh now that Google had the, you know, don't be evil, yeah. uh, which is sort of their 21st century version of the Hippocratic Oath. Yeah, you know, at that time it seemed like a really good idea and, and honorable. And then it seemed naive, yeah. then it seemed naive. now it seems prescient. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. But they've also changed it by now. Uh, By an algorithm, I uh, Well, I think the new one is um, do the right thing, which yeah. is... It's a bit more street, a bit more funky. Ethically very yeah. different to don't be evil. But what, what, what do you think should be the guiding principle you know, for these big algorithm companies? Okay, I have, a, I have a, a, I suppose a slightly different view about this because coming from a publishing background, I was always aware that you, know, you had fact checkers who were you know, wholly independent and you'd also have you know, Harvard verification and you'd have independent systems that would just allow you to to check facts or to check claims objectively and I think there is an opportunity for a business to say our entire focus over the next hundred years will be to maintain or to set levels of trust and measures of trust that you sign up to as a business and the customer can sign up to that as well and what our job will be is to become the independent monitors not of truth but of credibility and reliability and, and, and kind of balanced um, claims. Like, like sort of algorithmic reports. It could be an algorithmic, <laughs> I don't know how it works. But I was saying like consumer reports, but yeah, for yeah, yeah, but, for, but also for, for people, because we can't prevent your data going into the public realm. And if I think about Facebook at the moment, you know, my issue isn't that they are publishing fake news or any kind of news. My issue is that as soon as they stop talking about them being a platform, i.e. that removes you, that makes you, allows you to be amoral and you admit that you are a publisher because essentially you're a vessel for, for information see. that suddenly then you have to adhere to the principles of good ethics and journalism as it, as it ideally is, not as it really exists. Yeah. And I think by doing that, you then have a different conversation with the consumer because my consent might be, I'm happy for this to be used for medical, I'm happy for it to be used for, for example, environmental and sustainable. I don't want it to be used for issues relating to politics. And I think there is no reason why we can't then use our position through a credible third party or a filter to allow our data to be used in a good way. Because data is, you know, to use that old cliche, it is the new oil. You, you, you can't undo what the world You can't, and, and, and why should we want to do it? It's not, we're I, not Luddites. I, I think if I was a leader in a company today and I was trying to set the tone for making good decisions, to me, I'm starting to change my view about Apple. I was very negative about Apple for a long time because I kind of felt they were slow and they weren't embracing it. But now when I look back at a few of the decisions they've made over the last 10 years, I realize that most of those decisions are being made with the 
user's best interests in, at heart. Because in the end, they're selling products to consumers. To do, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas the problem with Facebook is that the product is the consumer. Humor, they're, yeah. they're selling the consumers to, to third parties. Yeah, and to themselves. And to yeah, themselves. Yeah. So uh, you could argue that a lot of the decisions were within the bounds of industry acceptable practice, what other people were doing, what regulators accepted, but I think it's becoming clear now they weren't in our interests. It's, and also, I don't think they knew what their interests were. I think they have, have stumbled onto um, ways of unlocking insights in a way that, for example, you know, if I'm, if I'm out or if I'm looking at things, I'm not looking what are, are, the, are the common themes, I'm looking what are the, the anomalies or the gaps. And I think it took Facebook years to realise that's where the real value of the data sits. Not that we know that more people are eating spaghetti, so no. we'll show them more ads and about spaghetti. And lots of diverse teams there working yeah. on different projects, yeah. throwing a lot yeah. of spaghetti at the wall. Yeah. yeah, and I just think now, they're, they're, first of all, there's a huge opportunity to reclaim back as you said, the optimism of data and how it can be used. There's a second opportunity, now that we have a better understanding as, as consumers and of businesses to create a more robust framework around it. And the third bit is, well, I was you know, there's always three acts and everything. What would we like it to do in future? Imagine I said to everybody, now that this data lake sits out there, and now that we've created proper dams to prevent it from leaking into the wrong places, and now that you can hop about on your boat and, and kind of go and enjoy it, what is it that we would like to do with this huge resource that would help us optimistically and beneficially manage the future? I, I, I had on the show uh, just a little while ago, I, I went and spoke to Ali Paza from uh, Babylon Health, and we were talking about this, and he was basically saying we almost need to, we almost need philosopher kings again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, we need leaders who who understand the future, who understand technology, but more importantly, they understand the new ethical trade-offs. Exactly. What is it that we because would give? Because that's what really yeah. ultimately determines whether we are in a good or a dystopian future. Yeah, and and also that that you know we understand the the I suppose the tangible nature of data and we understand both it's positive and negative, and we understand that data isn't the fact of life, it's the adjective, because there's still a tendency to, to put data along with you know, the, the economist side and along the, the logistician side and, and all the things that really bore people. And as a consequence, they don't engage with the beauty of the thing. And I don't mean data in the, just as you know, a kind of a, an abstract way. I mean that we can take from it all of the things that can potentially solve problems that we are having trouble with at the moment. And I think that, that the real issue is getting people to love data in the way that they love music, in the way that they love you know, the arts, performance. And I think that in itself is quite a difficult thing, but a philosopher will help us to better understand the opportunity and the poetry that sits in the numbers. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. Mm-hmm.